Laboratory and Associate Director of Clinical Training at the Catholic University of America. He's also seven books, I believe, we'll talk about one of those here a little bit, Managing Suicidal Risk, a Collaborative Approach. David, how are you? I'm good, Rodney. Thank you so much for having me on. No problem. Okay. We're just going to dive right in here, okay? Uh, how common is suicide in prison? How often does that happen? You know, it's one of the, the high-risk locations that we're always concerned about. Uh, jails, jails, lockups, prisons are, have been a, a, a prime spot for uh, in significant increased risk. And I suppose for some of your listeners that might be intuitive, but um, it's really been something that the, the, the uh, American penal system and forensic settings have really wrestled with over the years. It's, it's been a tough nut to crack, but I think uh, you know, that, that's certainly been a long-standing problem. Rodney. I noticed in some of the things I was reading about you that you said there was an 85% increase in suicides from 2001 to 2009 in state prisons. Wow. Why? What, what do you think would account for that? I mean, I know we're just guessing here, but why is, why is that happening so much? We don't know. I mean, what, what, the obvious, I suppose, would be that, you know, the isolation, um, the, the sort of a lack of a future. I, I remember doing a, an interview with a, a woman inmate in uh, Texas, uh, in Maryland here, in a maximum security prison, and she was suicidal, and it was a, like a training demonstration interview, and she was in, she was going to be incarcerated for the next 50 years. And I, I remember in that moment of interview, I was saying, gosh, you know, that's, that's a really tough sentence. And, you know, a lot of my go-tos as a clinician be sort of thinking about the future, and I had to kind of recalibrate my whole way of thinking because she's not basically spent the rest of her natural life in prison. Absolutely. Yeah. How do you... Okay, so we'll talk about the CAMS program and all that in a minute, but I'm just sure. curious about, because I don't know if you know my background or not, but before I did this podcast, I was in prison for seven years and 11 months in Texas. Yeah. And um, I heard stories. I never saw anything, but I heard that <clears throat> if anyone tried to commit suicide, what they do with them is they have a place that they take them, a unit, or I don't know how they do it, but they strip them down naked and they put them in a cell, and that's where they start. Does that sound, is that something that you've heard of? Or? Well, I think you hear all kinds of things, Rodney. So, so one of the things I think is, is sort of a, a common challenge in a lot of forensic settings is that uh, uh, see, sort of the guards or the clinicians that are involved uh, and working with the inmates will we'll feel like that um, that prisoners will threaten suicide as a, what we call instrumental behavior. So that, in other words, it, that it gets them into that quote-unquote cushier medical unit. I think that might be why they do that is so that it, you know, it's not a cushy escape. Yeah. No, I think, I think it depends on the, on the institution. I think what you're describing... In, in that in that perspective you just shared is 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 one version of it, and I think others they'll get off they'll get out of the general population. I, I remember a number of years ago, the state of Maryland instituted a law where where minors could be um, prosecuted as uh, adults. Mm-hmm. And I, I I made a visit to uh, to this Exodus Curie prison in, in uh, 
Right in, in, in Maryland, where I live outside of uh, in Laurel, uh, Maryland. And it was a really interesting um, discussion because one of the things that we were discussing was, you know, a 16, 17, 18-year-old uh, threatening suicide, um, you know, was, was a, a big concern because we know that young people also are uniquely at risk independent of their, their concept situation. Long story short, it was a situation where these young people didn't care. And they, they didn't mix well in the general population. In fact, they were they were describing issues around having these younger people mix the general population because the the older population um, was scared of these kids <laughs> um, it, because they're, they 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 don't care and they're they're very volatile and they they do high risk behaviors and they really didn't they really were uh, according to the, the clinicians that worked there they weren't really willing or able to fit in the general population. Mm-hmm. So there are, there are unique issues and dynamics in these settings, as you personally know. And I think uh, the field has really wrestled with, you know, how do we begin to tackle this when there's this quote-unquote instrumental behavior, which is, you know, which is perceived as manipulative mm-hmm. versus, you know, versus something being a, a genuine suicide risk, which, of course, is always a concern, no matter, no matter where somebody's located. So when, when, um, when, when your intervention comes in, it's, it's after a suicide attempt, or is there a way to identify some of these people prior? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Is there a way to, how, how do you find these guys before they try to do something like that? Yeah, our experience has been has been really mixed. We, we've done a lot of training, for example, in the California penal system, which is a huge right. uh, forensic uh, state, as you probably know. And, and you know, there, there are varying degrees of clinical sophistication or a total lack thereof, as you probably appreciate. Um, and in some of the settings where they, they really lean into this and try to be uh, a therapeutic force, they would they would set up a system whereby certain screeners could identify a potential inmate at risk. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we would, would you know engage them in this suicide focused intervention. I've got some great anecdotes, but also would observe that in our experience there were some clinicians who really Loved the intervention because it really made them feel like they were able to do something effective mm-hmm. with a, a, cer- a certain thing that they were working with. There were others that really hated it because a big thing about our intervention is sort of, it's sort of equalizing the relationship and working collaboratively. And there were a number of psychologists working in that system that really wanted a kind of position of authority and power over the inmate patient, which was kind of antithetical to our model. So mm-hmm. it's, a, it's an interesting setting, obviously, to do work in, and we see mm-hmm. a full range of of success and also just real challenges. I can imagine when you, okay, this is a hard question to ask, but I'm going to ask it. Sure. Why is it that some people can have what is seemingly a hopeless situation and they, they manage to get through that part? I mean, they don't take their life. Listen, I, I had uh, a cellmate one time that had a life sentence. I don't know how that guy got up and put his pants on every day. Yeah. He had no family. Yeah. But he did. He got up. He went to work. He came back. He watched TV. Yep. You know, yep. why Why can some people handle that and some people can't? That is, like, the biggest question in the field of suicide correction because you can 
look at a person and say, wow, their, their life is fairly okay, and they could be riddled with suicidal thoughts. If you look at somebody who's got a, a you know, who's got a, um, a very desperate set of circumstances like the inmate that you're describing, and, and they've got a sort of positive attitude. And we don't know. <laughs> we don't know. There are these individual differences. There's probably some level of uh, you know, genetic uh, vulnerability. Interesting. Uh, a, a lot of history connected to this. You know, mm-hmm. there's, there's, there are some people who go through very traumatic experiences and are strong, stronger for them, and others that go through traumatic experiences and they're, they're, it's, it's, a, it's a real weakness and a, a choice for them for the rest of their lives. So these individual differences are things that make us as psychologists go crazy because we, we can't quite pin down the, the magic answer to that huge question, which is a very understandable, legitimate question. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of in the eye of the beholder, and, and that person you're describing just has a different way of, of taking um, his circumstances and seeing a way to make his life work for mm-hmm. I, I saw that happen more than once. Uh, people sure. have situations like that, and for me, it was always, you know, there was a light at the end of the tunnel from day one. I mean, I knew yeah. that I was going to walk out of there, hopefully, <laughs> someday. Yeah, yeah. But, but these guys that you mentioned earlier, with, with these super long sentences, I just, it's really, I don't know how they do it. And I don't know, I, I don't know how I did seven years and 11 months, honestly, but. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, what, what, I would, what I would say is, you know, is that they, they find, they find within that environment, as challenging as it is, as you know, they find a sense of purpose and meaning. And, and that sounds corny, but I think it's true. They, they find a way to make an unbearable situation bearable. You know, I think about prisoners of war who, you know, survived the misery of, of being, you know, tortured, incarcerated, and all this kind of thing. You know, and, and sort of the, the, the stories of, like, John McCain or some of the other Vietnam uh, veterans that were incarcerated or in prison camps mm-hmm. in Vietnam. And, and they, they invariably had these incredible resources that they invented themselves or, you know, in the relationships that they formed to get them through an impossible set of circumstances. Um, it leaves a mark, typically, Rodney, but oh, it, at yeah. the same time, you know, obviously, but at the same time, these are remarkable human beings who found a way to make Is it um, if someone who has attempted suicide, is, is it like treating, we're going to get into your, do your treatment here in a minute, but is it like treating people with PTSD? I mean, is that, can you, can you get PTSD from getting a long prison sentence? <laughs> I think you may. Uh, yeah, you you can certainly get some form of despair and hopelessness. I think is not uncommon with a lengthy sentence and you know no options for parole. At the same time, as we were just observing, you know some people get the exact same sentence and they find a way to right. to survive it. And you know there's a, there are cases that I'm sure you're familiar where people have a long sentence and they get out and they can't really tolerate being out and and you know find a way back in. And so, I, you know, to me, as a clinical psychologist and as someone who's invested in saving lives, I, I take each, each individual at their at, at their face, and, and there's that sort of a universal template to, to describe all the population. What we certainly do know is that is that there's increased risk in the in the population of folks we're talking about today, and yet there are people that find a way to make it work, and that 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 is sort of the mystery and the promise of what this uh, of what this field offers. That's interesting. What about after incarceration? Is there a suicide issue there? 
because you mentioned, I, you, you know, we all yeah. know that some people don't land on their feet. Yeah. I think it depends. I, you know, when I, when I look at, like, for example, the, the psychologist colleague I had from graduate school who worked at the Tuxent here in Maryland, mm-hmm. um, he, he did group therapy with people that had lengthy sentences and had incredible outcome cases where he really felt like they were able to make it on the outside. A lot of that was was relevant to their disposition and sort of what support they had and, and sort of the relationship they had, you know, with their uh, uh, the person they check in with. I forget what um, you know, the, the people that do follow up uh, to make sure that the that the person is is you know is is following the plan. And again, these individual differences are always extraordinary. I, I just, to me, one of the things that has always drawn me to being a, a psychologist has been how is it that somebody's able to make it, you know, under the most desperate of circumstances? And, you know, what is that sort of human resource or resilience? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I work in the military, I work with the veterans population, and, you know, resilience is, is sort of a buzzword. But there is something in people that enables them to overcome the impossible. And, and to me, that, that invariably is around having a sense of purpose and meaning, um, no matter where, what the environment and a sense of hope. And, and I think what we're talking about is the conundrum of an environment that's meant to sort of, sort of break your, your spirit, I would think. Oh, yeah. I, mean, that's, that's, like, I, I think know. that's what it's for. I, mean, I think that's why. I think that's. They, they yeah. certainly broke me. <laughs> yeah. I so certainly I think don't want to go back, I'll tell you that. Yeah, I think frankly that's by design, and you know that's part of the part of the way that our system works. You know, at the same time, you know, I, I think there's also the real potential for recovery, and you know, and, and people to, to lead a very different life based on such a difficult right. experience and everything between. You know, I also found that that prison, just in general, is not. I mean, for me, was extremely punitive, but yeah. for some people. It's not, you know, and so, I don't know, we can get into a whole discussion about how prison is, is structured, but, okay, so your program, this thing that you're involved with called CAM, um, the word empathy is mentioned in there, it's an empathy-based program, tell us, tell us what it is and how empathy works into that and, and let yep. us know how that goes. So it's basically just a, a, a framework that a clinician would use to engage somebody on the topic of suicide without uh, finger wagging or shaming or blaming that person for having these thoughts and feelings, which which sounds all <laughs> I suppose admirable and so forth. But really, what you see in a lot of the settings that we've worked in, or well, even outside of prisons, is that there's the, the mental health field has like a has kind of, frankly, a, a controlling and punitive response. You know, that, that, that and there's a, the, even a medieval kind of history to this, Rodney, which is like, mm-hmm. this, this person is going to do something that we can't let them do, so we have to lock them up with, a, you know, hospitalize them or commit them against their will mm-hmm. until they come to their senses. And, and that, that legacy is very problematic when we look at what actually works as effective clinically with suicide risk. So, for example, in our model, um, what we typically do is take a seat next to the patient. Now, there, there were clinicians in some of the settings we trained where they feel uncomfortable sitting next to the patient because they're, they're a felon or they, they've been convicted of a, of a terrible crime. 
Well, I, say, no, I, I if I could just interrupt you, too, I would say that clinician probably needs to find another job. That, that's <laughs> that's my I agree. Uh, I'm I agree. sorry. Go I, ahead. I, I'm, not, I'm not disagreeing at all. I'm just observing one of the things that we observed was that there were clinicians who had this discomfort, even in spite of the job that they had. Mm-hmm. And there were others who were actually quite comfortable and, and found this way of meeting uh, the patient in a, in a empathic way um, and engaging and saying, essentially, through an assessment tool that we do together, side by side, ideally we can do it on telehealth, which, is, which for some people makes it more comfortable. Mm-hmm. In any event, uh, you know, it's a process of kind of unpacking, you know, what, where, how, and why do you think of suicide? And, um, and so that process is actually a therapeutic assessment of going through that together and then in st- the standard version of this intervention, we're asking the patient to develop a stabilization plan, which is what they do should they feel impulsive or out of control. Mm-hmm. And then the crazy thing about this intervention, which may seem so obvious, is that we ask the patient, what are the two things that make you want to kill yourself? And that becomes the focus of our treatment plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems simple, but this is kind of radically different than thinking, oh, you're a depressed person, so you need medication and we need to treat your depression. When the evidence doesn't really support that model, it supports the model like ours and others, where suicide, the matter of diagnosis, is the focus and the center of attention and care. How open are the institutions into uh, letting people come in and do this? Do you run into hurdles there? Oh, yeah. So, all the, you know, the range that you can imagine yeah. is... Is spectacular. So there, there are some places that have been, we were in the Georgia juvenile justice system um, and had tremendous success working with ad, you know, young adults and adolescents in that system. And there was a, there was a lot of receptivity, a lot of interest. They, they really had an ethos of, of, of mental health care that actually didn't exist in Georgia. Uh, they actually had to bring state troopers down uh, or, or federal troopers to, you know, to actually enforce uh, the state of Georgia having a mental health system in their kinds of settings for kids. God, you're um, No, no, it was, it was absolutely uh, a, a, a federal judge that ordered Georgia to institute mental health care for kids in their 28 forensic settings across the state. And the good news is that they were incredibly excited and welcoming of the intervention mm-hmm. um, and are using a version of it to the present day. On the other hand, we've had settings where, you know, and I'm not going to sort of name specifics, but in a set different settings that we've, we've trained, where there's been a real reluctance by the clinicians to engage with the model because it, it, it sort of eradicates the, the, the hierarchical, I'm, I'm your doctor, I can have control over you kind of dynamic. <laughs> yeah. um, we, had, we had a spectacular anecdote of a young um, doctoral student who... Uh, decided that she wanted to work with this particular inmate that the medical staff, mental health staff, was had just sort of labeled him, uh, you know, impossible, you know, like a lost cause. Mm-hmm. And, and, they, and they actually had her meet with him in the, the visiting uh, facility, mm-hmm. and she was, she was putting copies of these forms on the plexiglass and on a phone with this, with this inmate, if you can imagine. And that's how they did their treatment. And by God, this man responded amazingly. And all the medical staff were shocked because he was sort of infamous as being, frankly, like a lost cause. And she, and she, had, the, she had the 
whatever, the gusto or the, you know, the hypothetic, you know, stroke, really engage the model, and this is a matrix with like a duck of water. So, you know, there's, there's all these examples I can run by you, but, um, you know, when, when we've seen clinicians be up for this or even use this on telehealth, I think we've seen some, some nice progress and success. But then there's now a lot of roadblocks, a lot of people that, that just don't want anything to do with it. So that particular uh, therapist was using the, the SCAMS model to address that, that, yeah. that guy. Um, yeah. So what this is, is, is if I, let me see if I got this right, it's, it's a model that clinicians can use to, uh, to work with people that are suicidal. Correct. Okay. Um, now, your book, Suicidal Risk, a Collaborative Approach, did, is this about the CAMS model, or I haven't read your book, but... Yeah, that's okay. Um, um, yeah, it's a, <laughs> there have been three editions, and this one is uh, the final of the three editions. Mm-hmm. We do clinical trials, and, and to prove it's effective, and we've now kind of done the definitive work on that. So we know it's effective. Um, it is used in a range of settings around the world. Um, and we've done a fair amount of trading over the years in, in forensic settings uh, with, with a, a, I think, you know, pretty considerable success. But again, there are some clinicians for whom this they just they don't like it. So okay. there's that. What would happen if you tried to, to bring that down to Texas and CDC? Are you trying to do that in different states? Or how, how we're, we're sort of, yeah, we're sort of in a reactive mode. Um, we have a... a Separate from what I do, which is the, the science and the clinical um, development of the intervention, so we do have a training company, and the training company gets requests. And so we have we have clinicians that have worked more, uh, or consultants, I should say, that work more in this population. So a, a few of our folks would then do the training with the providers in those settings. One of the things that's interesting since COVID has been that the telehealth use of CAMS with great success in clinical trials. Which does create the potential, if if a, if a institution is is open to this, to providing telehealth, which could be a provider anywhere in the state, versus somebody that's physically in that facility. So we've we've been interested in exploring models like that, where the clinicians that want to work with this population, that are specially trained and in, 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 in invested in this population, can work using telehealth and in intervention across any facility in the state of Texas. So it requires funding, of course, to get to get, to get trained. Right. But um, when, when we've done that, it's been um, it's been really rewarding to see those success. Excellent. This is a really interesting and extremely important topic, and I'm, I didn't even know people were addressing this as vigorously as you are out there. And, and I appreciate your work. Your book is called Suicidal Risk: A Collaborative Approach. If people want to. Look into that. I imagine they get it on Amazon. Where is it? Yeah, they can go to Amazon. We we can also sell it through our training company, which is Cams Care. So Cams Care dot com. Okay. And uh, and then get you a discount for that. Um, and and then there's a what we do in the on the on the Cams Care training side is offer a menu to providers. Uh, some people can read the book and copy out the forms and just give it a go. Others mm-hmm. can get role play training and different kinds of uh, online training. So we, we really try to create different training options to meet different kind of learning styles. Okay. Very interesting. I think we just scratched the surface here, but I appreciate you being here today. Dr. David Jones, thank you so much. Thank you, Brad. You're